The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive with Dr. Rebecca Risk. Do you ever feel that even though nothing seems seriously wrong and you pass all the medical tests, that you still feel that your health, pain, and fatigue are completely out of control? It doesn't have to be that way. Listen to the tips and suggestions given on our program today and take back control of your health. Now, here is Dr. Rebecca Risk. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. And today we're discussing a topic that I think that we can all relate to, which is pain. We're speaking with Dr. David Hanscom, who is a board-certified orthopedic surgeon specializing in the surgical correction of complex spine problems in the cervical, thoracic, and lumbar spine. Around 2001, he began to share his own stress management tools with his patients that were in pain but had no indication for surgery and developed a pain management program. He has published a book called Back in Control, a Spine Surgeon roadmap out of chronic pain that is the basis for this program. So welcome to the show, Dr. Hanscom. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me on the show. Um, so can you just tell me why you decided to become a surgeon in the first place? I started out in internal medicine, which was my original plan, but I've always been very active in construction work and basically was a journeyman carpenter before I started medical school. And so I just always enjoyed using my hands and doing orthopedic surgery always was appealing to me. Uh, my father was also a physician, not a surgeon, but I always liked working with my hands. So it was, that was the original attraction. And then orthopedics was a natural um, outgrowth of that. Okay, so um, can you um, tell us a little bit about exactly what pain is? Well, well, what I've discovered over time is a surgeon we're taught in terms of structural terms. In other words, there's some pain that's always a structural cause for it. It's actually not true. Pain is simply a link to the a physical link to the environment that protects you. In other words, it's sensory input. And that sensory input could be either pleasant, neutral, or unpleasant. And what your body's what's called the nociceptive system does, it keeps your behavior in a realm that is relatively pain free. In other words, unconsciously you shift in your chair, so you'll break down your skin, you avoid bright lights, you are not touching things that are hot. So your body unconsciously is keeping your body in a range of behaviors that avoids pain. When you experience pain, it means you exceeded the threshold, the safe threshold of that body part. And if you don't have pain, you actually cannot protect yourself. So there are people that are born without a pain system called congenital indifference to pain. Their average lifespan is only about 10 or 15 years because they simply cannot protect themselves. So basically pain is a physical link to the environment that allows you to protect yourself and keep your range of behaviors in a range that doesn't destroy your body. We also find out that mental pain is also the same link. In other words, thoughts are a mental link to the environment that also protect you. And if you have a sensation that's unpleasant that causes pain, your body secretes adrenaline, and it causes you to behave in a way to avoid that behavior. Same thing with thoughts is that thoughts also allow you to assess risk versus opportunity, etc. 
and it gives you the same adrenaline response. And indeed, on research MRI scans, it shows that mental pain and physical pain behave pretty much in the same way. So at the end of the day, anxiety is a chemical response to the environment that allows you to protect yourself, and pain and thoughts are simply links that create that reaction. So how does this affect people? Well, normally it protects you. I mean, there's a book out called, by one of my true heroes, Dr. Paul Brand, called Pain, the Gift That Nobody Wants. So generally it protects us. It's a gift. It's very complex. There's light touch and pressure. There's hot and cold. Um, there's sharp, dull, etc. And what happens, though, is that when your pain threshold becomes altered, in other words, it becomes too low, all of a sudden you have pain impulses firing that should not be firing, then your body has actually, and your body can't escape it. It's a, it's a bit of a problem. So pain causes that anxiety response, which people will avoid at all costs. And when you can't escape it, then you feel trapped. And when you feel trapped, your body's adrenaline goes up, which makes the pain even worse. They've done animal studies showing that when you, when, when you take animals and stress them, then measure the nerve conduction velocity in their pain fibers, it actually increases by about 35%. So when you have a pain system that's out of balance and out of control, it is absolutely probably the worst part of the human experience. It's just a disaster. And they're now finding out in these, again, these research studies that chronic pain is a really complex neurological problem. It is not structurally based. And that's, of course, the biggest problem in medicine is that if you can't see it on a test, then, quote, it doesn't exist, and not only exist with these research MRI scans, you can tell which part of the brain that it does exist in, and it's just a nightmare for people that are stuck in this pain cycle. Well, it's interesting what you say about stress makes the pain worse, because I don't know anybody who's in pain who's not stressed. So it must then become a, a vicious cycle for them. Absolutely. Yeah, no, what happens is that it's not psychological, it's neurological. In other words, not, the scientists have a little saying, call it neurons that fire together, wire together. And what happens is that, of course, pain causes anxiety, and then other life circumstances cause anxiety. So pain gets linked to lots of other triggers. And so you get an outside stress, your kid has a problem at school, et cetera, that cranks up your body's adrenaline, that you're stressed out. Then, of course, pain causes that same stress. Then those two become linked, and you're getting this abnormal chemical response to the environment and it's a problem right it's a horrible vicious cycle well so when people go through this cycle i mean i've in my practice practicing chinese medicine and acupuncture and dealing with chronic illnesses i've seen this you know thousands of times where um the anxiety can become a bigger part of it and look like that's the cause but essentially the 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 pain is at the root of that. And how does the, the medical system handle that? What do they do with people when they're in that chronic state? Well, let me say one thing first before I answer that question. In other words, I think that what drives it is the anxiety. In other words, when I ask people which is coming for surgery, they'll have a structural problem with leg pain, but they'll also have chronic pain and crippling anxiety. So I used to think there was a pain that caused the anxiety it appears to be the way around. So if I, get, if I give people the choice of getting rid of their leg pain or their arm pain versus their anxiety, they almost always choose, I want to get rid of my anxiety. I mean, mental pain is just agony. 
the problem is, is that you think about this carefully, you know, bright lights can cause anxiety, loud sounds, bad taste, adverse smells, all those sensations can cause an adrenaline reaction and anxiety. Thoughts, again, do the same thing. You know, negative thoughts create racing heart. They create this physiologic response that's real. With all the other sensory input, including pain under normal circumstances, you can escape that sensory input and behave in a way that allows you to feel safe. The only sensation that you cannot escape is thoughts. And in fact, it's been shown when you try to escape thoughts, you act, when you try not to think about something, as you know, you think about it even more. There's a famous experiment in 1987 published out of Harvard nicknamed White Bears that not only when you try not to think about something, you think about it more, you think about it a lot more. There's a trampoline effect. So thoughts are the one sensory input that you can't escape. And so as you get older, you get these thoughts coming at your brain. And by the way, we didn't talk about this earlier, but we look at pain as a programming problem. We look at thoughts as a programming problem. So with repetition, your brain memorizes these pathways just like an athlete or an artist learns a skill. So the problem with pain pathways, mental or physical, they come in so quickly that they become memorized in about three to six months. Once they're in your brain, they are permanent. It's like riding a bicycle. So you have this incredibly adverse, uncomfortable sensation in your body all the time the form of chronic anxiety or chronic physical pain, and they're really not that much difference as far as the nervous system goes. And in medicine, we've gone down a track, as you well know, of performing procedures when your body is actually responding to the environment with a physiological response, in other words, a chemical reaction to the environment, which we call physiology. That's 99% of the time your body's reacting to the environment physiologically. There's probably not a structural problem. For instance, if you have stomach pain, your body secretes adrenaline, which decreases the blood supply to your stomach. And when your stomach is, quote, in knots, it's a blood supply issue. It's not an ulcer. But what medicine's doing right now, we're doing endoscopies. Same thing with back pain. If you have back pain, it's probably a muscular problem, or it's just muscle tension, or it's programmed pathways. And for some reason, medicine has decided, well, now it's a surgical problem. It must be something we do surgically. So we've become really focused on these procedures for a physiological problem. And it's become a real problem. And what happens in medicine, the physicians in general become extremely frustrated because we're making the wrong diagnosis. And same thing with me. I'm one of the few surgeons who's been on both sides of this fence. In other words, I spent almost 10 years doing surgery for back pain. And about 1993, the data came out that the success rate in the state of Washington a workers' comp patient going back to work at one year was 15%, one five. And I just stopped. I go, this makes no sense at all. And I was having trouble with my own patients. I would do the surgery, get the fusion to heal, et cetera. And my patients weren't going back to work either. And I couldn't figure out what was going on because we were all trained that this was the right thing to do. But again, when you're doing a structural solution or a physiological problem, it's just just not going to work. So as a consequence, when, you, when I give lectures on chronic pain, I will poll the audience about how many, how many of you in the audience enjoy treating chronic pain, and essentially nobody raises their hand because everybody's very frustrated. They don't have the right paradigm, and I used to be part of that group. But I gave a lecture at Mayo Clinic a couple of years ago called Enjoying the Management of Chronic Pain, and it's by far and away become the most rewarding part of my practice. It's, been, it's just been unbelievable. 
Well, you know, I, I, one thing I, about your book that I found interesting was when you asked a question of somebody of how you deal with pain and they said, oh, you just do a little bit of this and a little bit of that and it goes away and you had realized that it was actually the patient that went away. Correct. Yeah. yeah, I was taught that by several people. You just, essentially what you're doing, you're, I'm, I'm not trying to be, I mean, doctors are trying the best they can do. We're just not trained to do this. I'm not being negative in the medical profession in no. a way. I mean, I'm not being negative with individual doctors, but our profession is not being trained correctly. So you try some anti-inflammatories, try physical therapy, try some injections, and you just sort of do something to help the patient move along and get through your office day, but we're really not geared to providing a solution. So you're really, you're correct. And the other thing is with chronic pain is that we're taught that only 10% of people have pain that lasts for a period of time. It turns out it's probably closer to 30 or 40% of pain becomes chronic, and that's a big problem. So then the problem is once it's in your system, it's like once you are an athlete or an artist or musician, you practice this skill over and over and over again, your skill becomes better Say that your body and pain pathways, your body becomes more efficient and better at processing pain. So your pain actually always, in, chronic pain always increases with time. It does not get better on its own. Hmm. Um, you know, 30 to 40 percent is a really high number for that many people to be in chronic pain without um a, a real solution. I mean, I agree with you. It, it's not really that doctors don't want to help. It's that we don't understand how to. Um, you know, it's not, um, it's just not not there. And we've often ignored the things like the anxiety and, and that kind of thing that can be creating this and adding to it, which is why I loved your book so much, because it it um, is addressing that at the same time as looking at the physical part that could be causing the pain as well and addressing everything that the patient needs. Right. So we're going to take a quick break. Um, we're talking today with Dr. David Hanscom, uh, who is the author of Back in Control, A Spine Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain. Um, we're, um, so we're finding solutions for the chronic pain. So we're going to be back shortly. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Tune in every Tuesday for C. diff, spores, and more with hosts Nancy Kerala and Dr. Chandra Bali Ghosh. Our program is to provide information about C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and more. Nancy is a C. diff survivor, healthcare professional, and the founder and executive director of the C. diff Foundation. And Dr. Ghosh is the chairperson of research and development for the C. diff Foundation. Together with their guests, we'll explore infection prevention, treatments, environmental safety, and more. Listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. 
out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Welcome back to Falling Through the Cracks. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk, and today we're talking with Dr. David Hanscom. He's the author of Back in Control, A Spine Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain, and we're discussing your solutions for chronic pain. So, Dr. Hanscom, um, since you've been doing back surgery for so long, um, what results have you seen for people doing this? Well, I've gone gone through many, many phases of back surgery. This will actually be my 30th year doing spine surgery, which... Of course, as all, all of us know, time goes by very quickly. But I came out of my fellowship just on fire that I had the answer for chronic pain because we had these new screws and plates that allowed us to get a fusion essentially 100% of the time. And I was a zealot. I just did dozens and dozens of surgery for back pain. And I asked my partner one day, well, where's the data? And he looks at, looks at me and goes, well, there isn't any data. So that caught my attention, and then, again, I said when the data came in 1993 that the success rate was only 25% or so, I just stopped. Then another paper came out in 2006 showing that in a very carefully controlled study out of Stanford that if you did a fusion for back pain in very selected patients, that the two-year success rate was only 24%, a two-year follow-up. Then it comes really clear that we look at the data really carefully I can't really find one paper that definitively tells me that anybody should have surgery for back pain. But right now we're spending $11.5 billion a year on spine surgery. Now, I'm a spine surgeon. I do a lot of spine surgery. Unfortunately, a lot of my spine surgery is done trying to salvage people that have had prior surgeries that should never have been done. And so we get complications, we get infections, we get spine breaking down above and below the fusions. So it's sort of a disaster. I've had one gentleman 29 surgeries in 20 years other gentlemen, 20 surgeries in about five years. And these patients, once they start this cascade of surgeries, it's just a horrible set of problems. So the people that we should, that I think need surgery, that do well, are the ones that have a obvious bone spur, they have a pinched nerve, the area of the body that is painful matches that nerve exactly. And so when we take that bone spur away, the pain goes away almost 100% of the time. That being said, we started a process about four years ago where with every patient on elective surgery, we have people sleeping better, we stabilize medications, we decrease anxiety, we improve the physical conditioning, and people would come in for their preoperative visit and they would cancel the surgery because their pain went away. And this is even with major, major structural problems that I, I wouldn't, nobody would hesitate to do surgery on in a heartbeat. We're getting ready to publish this paper of almost 50 patients who have gone through this process, which was a complete shock to me. I never thought somebody with this structural problem could actually get better that quickly and that completely. Mm-hmm. So, by the way, the book is not about managing your chronic pain. The book is about solving your chronic pain. So people's pain really does disappear. I was myself in severe chronic pain for about 15 years, with the last seven of those years being absolutely intolerable, and I'm fine. So my patients, when they go pain-free, I mean, obviously 
life goes up and down, the pain comes and goes. But in general, they do come out of their pain pathways. So it's really about solving chronic pain, not managing chronic pain. Well, you said um, before that, you know, anxiety was actually fueling that pain. Can you just explain that a little bit for us? Well, anxiety is, you know, historically been felt to be a psychological issue, and it's really not. It's a chemical response to sensory input that allows you to protect yourself. So again, you have vision, feel, taste, touch, smell, all those senses are coming into your body to help you act in a way to avoid danger. And again, thoughts are the same thing. So if you have an unpleasant thought or somebody's threatening you or somebody's going to threaten you on a business deal or you might lose your job, those are all thoughts that create that same chemical reaction that physical pain does or any other sensation. So what happens is that anxiety is part of the unconscious part of the brain, which is about one million times stronger than the conscious brain. So when you actually try to talk about anxiety to solve it, you're using conscious means to deal with these unconscious circuits, and you have no chance. It's like trying to take down Mount Everest with a pickaxe. You just can't do it. So it's a complete mismatch, plus you're trying to take... So the, the way we solve chronic pain, by the way, is it was called neuroplasticity. In other words, your brain will develop wherever it places attention. It's like diverting a river into a different channel. So if you look at anxiety as a psychological issue and discuss it and talk about it, it's actually part of the unconscious part of the brain. It's actually involved with a major chemical reaction. So when you try to talk about it and analyze it, your attention is actually on the pathways. So to me, it's like sticking your hand into a hornet's nest and try to solve the problem. So I was actually in psychotherapy personally for about 13 years, and I didn't understand exactly the time anything about chronic pain. And I realized that although it has some value, I just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And part of my chronic pain was extreme anxiety in the form of a full-blown obsessive compulsive disorder. And that's with very vivid, intrusive thoughts that just simply don't stop. Again, the more you try to suppress them, the worse that they get. So the chemical reaction in that becomes intense. You can't sleep. It's just a miserable experience. And again, what I now realize is the more I talked about these pathways, that's where my attention was. So what you're trying to do simply, if you look at anxiety as a neurological issue, and again, mental pain is similar to physical pain, but probably worse. I mean, I was saying in my own experience that the mental pain was way worse than the physical symptoms. You know, I think just raw anxiety is absolutely intolerable. It's just like a branding iron, branding iron on your brain. So what happens is you're simply trying to de-adrenalize your nervous system, calm it down, and simply shift pathways. And that sort of calming and shifting is quite effective. It's very consistent, whereas trying to solve and fix this is, is absolutely undoable. So the anxiety, in my mind, turned out to be the biggest part of the whole problem. Okay. And then, so in your, I mean, I'm sure we've, I think everybody has a bit of anxiety, whether they realize it or not, either, you know, underlying um, or that they're suppressing and not noticing that it's there. And in your book, you talk about anxiety being more forefront and then anger being um, the next step. Well, what happens is that if you look at this from an evolutionary standpoint, is that the antidote to anxiety is either rigid, structured thinking, in other words, extreme belief systems, or it's control. So something causes anxiety, say you're hungry, you're going to control your behavior to get food or water or air, 
or social status, etc. So the antidote to anxiety is control. And the more control you have, the less anxiety you have. So when you lose control of a situation that causes anxiety, your body's going to kick in adrenaline to actually solve the problem, which results in anger. So from my perspective, anger is just anxiety on steroids. It's just anxiety with a chemical kick. So what happens with anxiety, your body is designed to survive, not have a good time. So with anxiety, your body has adrenaline and cortisol and other stress hormones to help it take care of itself. When you become angry, those chemicals really kick into gear and really allow you to take care of yourself and survive. But of course, at that point, it really shuts down the blood supply to your brain, it dilates the airways to your lungs, it shuts down the blood supply to your intestines, it increases the blood supply to your muscles, but it's only about you and you lose complete awareness of people around you. And so then your body's really adrenalized, then your pain gets way worse, and you give a horrible cycle that just starts tearing people's lives apart. And, and of course, the people around them really suffering chronic pain because people in chronic pain are trapped and they're frustrated and they're angry. And Dr. Sarno even called it rage. I mean, you're so trapped, it's unbelievable. I, I think that describes um, everybody who's either in a chronic illness or chronic pain is they do feel trapped because right. they they haven't found answers and um, they don't want to feel the way they do. So that, that does explain it really well. Um, so what's the mind-body syndrome? Well, there's different ways people look at it. <clears throat> Dr. Sarno popularized, popularized this in the 1970s with what's called tension myositis syndrome. And his concept was where people were trapped and angry and the muscles had become tight and caused chronic pain. Um, it's actually been around for longer than that. Dr. Benson in the 20s actually sort of figured this out also. But my concept is that when you're under stress, your body secretes adrenaline. And Dr. Abbas out of Halifax pointed out that when your body's full of adrenaline, each organ system is going to respond in its own way. So when your body's full of adrenaline, so there's over 30 symptoms of what's called mind-body syndrome. And so, for instance, there's migraine headaches, ringing in the ears, burning sensations around the body, skin rashes, itching sensations, um, not sleeping, eating disorders, obsessive sleep patterns, ringing in the ears, etc. So at the worst part of my ordeal, I actually had 16 of these 33 symptoms at the same time. And again, I had no idea what was going on. Nobody told me what was going on. And the good news is that once your body's adrenaline decreases, is that all of these symptoms disappear. Because in other words, every organ is now in a normal chemical environment. So the mind-body syndrome is a physiological, re- physiological response to stress. And again, what happens in chronic stress that's not being processed properly, in other words, when you're under a continuous adrenaline assault, it's like driving your car down the freeway in second or third gear. You're always revved up. You're always full of adrenaline. And that's when people actually physically become sick. I mean, your body can respond with real symptoms. And we do know there's a very, very strong link between stress and major illness. And so the step beyond mind-body syndrome is going to be autoimmune disorders. It's going to be cancer, et cetera, et cetera. And indeed, the mortality rate long-term of people that are unhappy versus happy, this is a study out of Harvard, showed that the mortality rate was something like 10 times higher over 30 years in people that were unhappy versus people that were happy. A huge difference. So there's multiple papers showing that stress flat out causes disease. Hmm. 
um, you know, which is what everybody's saying, but nobody quite knows what what to do with that, right? You, you take that information, go, yes, I'm stressed, and now what? Um, which is, you know, what I like about the program that you have is is giving answers in that direction. Um, in your book, you talk a lot about victimization. Um, how does that relate to pain? Well, this is my most personally developed expert skill, which I'm not very proud about, but it is still my expert skill because I, I tend to disguise it. But what I slowly learned is that there's a genealogy of anger where you have a circumstance that you blame, then you're a victim, and then you're angry. And there's perceived victimhood where, you know, somebody's taught, well, you know, somebody didn't invite you to a party or, or your feelings are hurt, et cetera, et cetera. So there's perceived victimhood, and then there's real, real victimhood where, let's say, for instance, you were physically assaulted. And chronic pain, of course, is real victimhood, and you still blame your victim, then you're angry. The problem is with real victimhood is that it's harder to let go. Whether it's perceived victimhood or whether it's real victimhood, the end result is still the same chemical response of being angry and frustrated. Doctors have a problem is that we're perfectionists, and we think that perfectionism is, is a great idea, but it's actually a terrible idea in that you now have a circumstance where you're less than perfect, so either you're less than perfect or the circumstance is less than perfect, then you blame yourself for the circumstance, then you're a victim of less than perfect, and you're always frustrated. So it wears professionals down. I'll speak just for doctors right now. I'm, I am assuming this is true in other professions also, is that the burnout rate in medicine right now is right around 55%. It's gone up over 10% in the last five years. Neurosurgeons, by the way, the burnout rate is over 65%. And what takes us down is a sustained negative drive that we're not good enough, not perfect enough, and always sort of mentally punishing ourselves. So that same drive that takes us up the hill takes us right down the other side. Perfectionism is a lot different than having a vision of excellence where you say, this is where I am, this is where I want to go, and these are steps I'm going to take to get there but you're okay where you're at. It's a huge paradigm shift, but by the selection process that gets us into medical school and surgical residency is that negative drive. And mm-hmm. so that's, that's where the whole victim thing comes into play. So being okay where you're at, whether you're in pain or still sick, and you have to be okay with that. Correct. But, yeah. but, you, can't, but you can't do it intellectually. In other words, no. we all sort of intellectually know this. You know, accept yourself, be who you are. But I understand these behavioral patterns are deep. They're ingrained throughout your whole lifetime. So that's why it takes these, what you will know as somatic tools, to actually start rerouting pathways and shifting. Okay. Um, and, and all that, that seems to make sense. I don't think we always realize that we do that, you know, um, you know, making ourselves a victim of the situation or being the victim because we're... Um, stuck in, in where we are and you know if someone else is to blame then they're the ones that should have to help us our doctors need to help us or that kind of thing but really to um, to look within yourself and try to work on shifting those things so you can be okay where you are because what if it never 100% resolves itself you have to find a way to be okay with where you are right yeah no, so, absolutely no, I mean, yeah. taking 100% responsibility for every aspect of your life is actually the essence of the solution to this project. And, and of course, it's a lot easier said than done, but it's certainly with practice and repetition why you can, you can really change how your nervous system functions. So in, in short, though, stress is not the problem. It's the 
reaction to the stress. So remember, your automatic response to any stress, by definition, signals danger, so your body's going to go into an adrenaline response. So what you're trying to do is to create a little bit of a space between the situation and your response. Then what happens is instead of being choice, automatic, defensive response, it becomes situation, choice, response. So in other words, in other words, in other words instead of going to, to the default adrenaline, then you realize that this response isn't working very well, then you choose a different response, is you make that choice over and over and over again, you actually you start developing an automatic response that is much more functional. Okay. Um, we're going to take a quick break. We're talking today with Dr. David Hanscom, who is the author of Back in Control, A Spine Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain, and we're helping you find a solution to your chronic pain. So uh, tune in. We'll be back shortly. out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. What causes us to be sick? We're not talking about the actual illness or the scientific cause of illnesses. We're talking about your body and health. Listen for the healing whisper of return to peace. Each week, host Dr. Marianne Chase shows you how to listen to your heart to identify poor health, stress, and disease. You'll learn how to heal energetically and spiritually, as well as physically. It's time to depend less on the drugs and more on the heart. The Healing Whisper airs live every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. On Therapeutic Approach to Growth, host Brooke Wagner showcases topics and experts that are of interest to the special needs community. You'll learn about advances in treatment, challenges, and solutions, as well as how to build and maintain trusting relationships with these amazing individuals who can teach us so much about ourselves in ways we never knew. Tune in to Therapeutic Approach to Growth, live every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Falling Through the Cracks. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. And we're here today with Dr. David Hanscom, who is a board-certified orthopedic surgeon who authored the book, Back in Control, A Spine Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain. We're here to help you find your way out of pain. So, Dr. Hanscom, um, you mentioned uh, earlier about neuroplasticity. And can you just explain what that means and how that relates to recovering from pain? When I was in medical school, we were taught that you were born with a certain number of brain cells and you are born with an excess number of brain cells, by the way, at birth, and then your brain actually starts pruning these things. And they say in males, by about 25 years old, you sort of have your neurological supply forever. Well, what we found out in the last 15 years with these new, what's called functional MRI scans, where they can actually tell which parts of the brain are firing, et cetera, is that your brain actually changes shape all the time. And 
what you're not going to want to hear is that in chronic pain, your brain actually physically shrinks. But when you treat chronic pain successfully, your brain actually physically re-expands. So we know that at any age that you can actually lay down myelin, you can increase connection, you can increase the size of the cells. It's a little unclear to me whether you can actually grow new neurons, but the brain's incredibly neuroplastic and it allows you to create new pathways and new connections in a heartbeat. So the essence of the solution is several, is that the first one is neuroplasticity. We actually create new connections with repetition. And there's a sequence there of awareness, separation, and reprogramming. And like I said before, stress isn't the problem, it's the reaction to the stress. So once you become aware of the automatic reaction, then you gotta create some space, you gotta separate a little bit, and then you substitute. So one thing that people do in chronic pain is into this positive thinking mode. But unfortunately, positive thinking in chronic pain, nobody's asking you to be happy about the pain. In fact, you're pretty upset. So once you become aware how frustrated you really are, then you can substitute a new pattern. So for instance, positive thinking is another way of trying not to think about negatives. When you suppress things, you actually think about them more. So in chronic pain, positive thinking actually is somewhat detrimental. So what we do, we start out with a process of what's called negative or therapeutic writing. We simply write down negative thoughts and you tear them up. The only reason you're tearing them up instantly is to write with absolute freedom. The darker and crazier the thoughts you can get on paper, the more powerful the process because those are the ones we suppress the most. And since the brain works by association, any random connection becomes sort of a problem. The more we try to get rid of that random association or that crazy thought, we gave it neurological attention and it gets stronger. So there's 10,000 ways to get better, but the one punctuation or starting point is this, what's called negative writing. There's over 200 research papers since 1982 published on the topic that shows how effective this process is, and different people do it different ways, but the one starting point for essentially every patient that's gotten better is, this, is what's called negative writing. And then you substitute by simply doing which I call active meditation, or you would call mindfulness, we simply place your brain on sensory input. So as you're sitting here listening right now, just you know, feel the back of your chair and feel where your arms are, and done. It takes 5 to 15 seconds. So your brain goes from these unconscious pain, path- unconscious pain pathways into a conscious sensation. You're simply flipping out of the pain pathways into something else. And with repetition, that becomes more of a default mode than the pain pathways. So again, combining the negative writing, which does awareness and separation at one move, and combining it with a simple active meditation exercise, which is the reprogramming tool, is the core of the whole project. Hmm. So the active meditation is just bringing you aware of what's going on. Well, it's, it's actually switching sensations. In other words, we actually do this during surgery. So if you get anxious or frustrated in surgery, instead of going focus, 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 that means we're actually focused on focusing. We're actually not connected to the move. So what we do is we drop our shoulders and we go to feel, just go to light touch. And what happens is that I'm now connected to the move. I'm not thinking about focusing. So what happens, these crazy racing thoughts essentially have disappeared for me. My consistency of surgical performance has gone up dramatically. And plus it's just more enjoyable. So when you flip sensations, you simply... Remember, we talked about earlier how vision, taste, touch, smell are all competing for attention as far as sensory input. When your negative thoughts are winning, 
what you've done with the act of meditation simply switch to a different sensation. So when you go to feel, you're simply off the negative thought pathways onto a sensation. So what mindfulness does, you simply switched sensory input. Hmm. Um, I liked what you said about positive thinking, and I just wanted to make sure I understand that, um, that when you're positive thinking, you're actually repressing the anxiety and the anger that's there? Correct. Okay. That's what got me in trouble, by the way, initially. You know, to be a spine surgeon, you're sort of taught positive thinking, mind over matter, put your head down, don't complain. And that is what we do. The problem is we always have this voice in our heads that's saying, you know, harder, harder, harder. You tend to focus on the one out of 100 things that you did wrong. I mean, 99 things went right, and the one thing that that you did wrong, of course, we tend to focus on that. So we tend to be positive thinkers where the reality is our hours are long, our stresses are high, we're not, not, not taught how to process stress. And again, the positive thinking represses a lot of negativity. There's a paper that came across my desk last week that showed that when you suppress thoughts or emotions, you actually damage the hippocampus of your brain. And that part of the brain is was responsible for short-term and long-term memory, and it actually causes physical alterations in your brain by suppressing thoughts and emotions. It's a stunning paper. Okay, that's interesting. Um, so what you just described, I know, is, is the first step in your program. Um, how long does somebody spend doing that? And what, what, what can they see as results? Well, the writing is interesting. I mean, I, I recommend just ballpark. First of all, with the writing, just to be really clear, the first week or two when you start the writing, there may be a dip in your mood, and patients will come in and say, well, I thought I would start writing and feel better, but I feel worse. Then I know they're actually writing. Because, I mean, what happens with the writing, all these issues come up, and I point out to, I, I point out to them that these are not issues, they're just thoughts. And what you're doing is simply separating from these thoughts. Because you can't change the past, you cannot change the lengths of the past, and so the writing does is simply a separation process. So what happens is that um, within two to four weeks after people start writing, things start to shift. I know for my situation, after 15 years of horrendous chronic pain, within about a month, things started to change pretty dramatically. And, um, and, as a, and I, trust me, I tried everything. And, and being a physician, I had access to everything you can imagine, and nothing really worked. And within two to four weeks, things started to change. And most of my patients that start writing, they come in and they just sort of laugh. They think, this is crazy. And things shift. Now, a lot of people won't start writing, and I haven't quite figured that out because it's an incredibly simple step. And so the reason why I can tell people I've been writing or not because people really do change consistently that first two to four weeks. I would guesstimate for most people that their pain starts really disappearing in about three to six months after they start the process. Within six to 12 weeks, people start noticing some significant shifts in their anxiety and their mood pretty quickly. Okay. And then um, what do you do after that started to shift things? Well, let me just back up a little bit a second on the whole project. So the metaphor okay. that I use for the whole project is simply fighting a forest fire. In other words, a fight a forest fire takes an air attack, ground attack, water, retardants, bulldozers, etc., and you need all of those to solve the fire. It's the same thing with chronic pain. There's three parts of getting better. The first part is simply understand chronic pain, that it's a neurological disorder. The second part is to understand that every variable 
that is pertinent to you has to be treated at the same time. In other words, there's never one answer. And the third thing is you take control of your own care. So the variables that we work on are sleep, stress, medication management, physical conditioning, and then simply life outlook. And those are the five basic variables that we look at as far as solving chronic pain. And so the, what I do with the first four to six weeks is simply work on sleep, which is number one. In other words, this entire project is null and void without sleep. And people say, well, I'm in chronic pain, I can't sleep. There's a paper I just saw yesterday that showed that it's the lack of sleep induces chronic pain. Chronic pain does not cause lack of sleep. So again, going back to the anxiety being the more important driving force, of course, what causes insomnia is anxiety. So I still think that the mental pain is more of a problem than the physical pain, but they get linked. So sleep is number one, and then I have to start the negative writing, which is just five or ten minutes, once or twice a day. And I combine that with the act of meditation as the third step. Then the fourth part is simply to learn more about chronic pain. So for the first four or six weeks, it's the writing, it's the relaxation, it's the sleep, and simply understanding pain. And then once they get grounded and understand the model really well, the next, next step we jump into is forgiveness, trying to really let go of the problem. They did another recent study showing that 95% of people that had chronic pain had really not let go of the situation of the person that had, that had started the process. But interestingly enough, the person that they were not forgiving was themselves. The hardest person they were on were themselves for either being in the situation or allowed it to happen or whatever it was. People don't forgive themselves very well. And so even if you forgive the other person that wronged you, if you don't let yourself off the hook, you still get that body's adrenaline response. So we, so we go through a forgiveness process, which really changes the game. Then you can start increased physical activity. You start coming off medications. And it's just sort of a choreographed process that occurs over time. But about 90% of it is self-directed. It, it's, it's, and it's probably, once people engage in the process, it's probably 90 to 95% effective. The biggest problem we have is that people simply don't want to engage. They just don't want to do it. And that mm-hmm. part, I, have not, I don't have an answer for that. Um, I don't either. I, I think somehow we get in our own way, and um, maybe it's too scary to look at what's going on there. Right. Yeah. So you discuss the abyss in your book. What is that? Well, you know, it's interesting because in medicine we've been taught there's things like anxiety, frustration, depression, catastrophizing, personality disorders, substance abuse, et cetera. And, and all those are, are really critical factors. But what I've concluded that essentially everybody that has chronic pain gets into just a really dark spot in their mind where they're trapped, they're frustrated, they keep trying to get help, they're not getting the help, and every time they get their hopes up for some treatment to solve the problem, they get beat back down again. And so with repetition, they get incredibly discouraged. And I can't really use a word like anxiety, depression, or catastrophizing to describe this spot. I was there. I was there for at least... 10 of those 15 years, and you feel incredibly trapped. You feel like you're in this box with no way out and not even any hope of coming out of this situation, and it's just as dark as you can imagine, and that's what I call the abyss. But it is so frustrating, so deep, and so dark. One advantage I have, and I would not choose to take this advantage if I was offered this again, is that I I essentially can look any person in the eye that's suffering from chronic pain and go, look, so I know you're suffering. I'm not really minimizing any part of your suffering, 
you might be suffering as much as I was, but not more. I mean, 15 years is a really long time to be in chronic pain. And it was just the, the, the nightmare of my life. And, I, you know, I had a nice career, a nice kid, nice wife, all sorts of things. And nothing worked. People cannot outrun these pain pathways. So the severity of stuff that I had was extreme. And I'm not minimizing, minimizing anybody else's suffering. And some people's physical circumstances were worse, but not much. And um, so I've been there. I understand how bad it is. I, I totally get it. And, um, and that's the exciting part for me is that I was on the, on the extreme edge of chronic pain, and, I am, and I'm really not only fine, I'm, I'm absolutely thriving. So, yeah, it's been a very rewarding journey for me, but it's been incredibly rewarding watching literally hundreds of patients come out of this chronic pain hole. It's just been incredibly rewarding. Um, you know, I, I want to thank you for sharing this. I think this um, is something that a lot of people should um, look at encompassing in their journey. I mean, like you said, there can be other things causing the pain or whatever is going on, but we can't separate ourselves from our emotions. And so, of course, our emotions do affect us. And, um, and you know, it can't be ignored. We can't just do surgery and take medication and assume that our lives are going to go on as normal. No, I absolutely totally agree with that. Um, so we are going to end the show. I want to thank you so much for sharing with us today. Yeah, I, this was for, I really enjoyed this. This was very nice. Um, do you have a website that people can reach you at? Um, www.backback-control.com. So it's basically backincontrol.com with a hyphen, hyphen between the words. And the book, it, I actually have a getting started section on the website where I have my pages actually look at the website first before they get into the book. But I really want people to get started on the negative writing and the active meditation to start the process because nothing really happens until that happens. So then the book, of course, can backfill a lot of information. But really, once you start the writing and relaxation tools, it's, uh, things begin to move. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Um, we were speaking today with Dr. David Hanscom, the author of Back in Control, A Spine Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain. Um, next week, we're going to spe- be speaking with John Fielding about COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. If you have any questions about today's show, you can email us at anantacalgary at gmail.com or message us on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love to hear your comments or thoughts. Make today a great day. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Please join Dr. Rebecca Risk again next Monday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk more next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.